It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. Election Day is now just over one week away, and the candidates are making their final push. President Trump expected to hit nearly a dozen states in the last stretch of the race, visiting many of the battleground states expected to decide this election, including Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Meanwhile, the Biden campaign has eyes on expanding the map to traditional Republican strongholds of Georgia and Texas. Our socially distant panel is anxiously awaiting to discuss and talk about crunching the numbers. But first, we'll be looking at some of the key states in the upcoming 2020 election. Fox News Radio National Correspondent Jared Halpern gives us an update on these closely contested states. President Trump won Iowa by nearly 10 points in 2016, a 15-point swing for the Republican nominee from four years prior. President Obama won the state by nearly six points. One reason is pivot counties, counties that voted for President Obama in 2012 and President Trump in 2016. Of Iowa's 99 counties, nearly one in three is a pivot county. Ohio, another quadrennial swing state, is home to nine pivot counties, making up the lion's share of the vote swing from President Obama in 2012 to President Trump in 2016. Democrat Tim Ryan represents a couple of those counties in the U.S. House. You know, we're losing manufacturing jobs. We're losing uh, auto jobs. And we need to make sure we hold on to these jobs that we have right now until we get to building electric vehicles, batteries, charging stations, all of these things. Ryan believes former Vice President Joe Biden has improved the economic message for Democrats in the region. Voters President Trump has regularly courted, claiming they are no longer the forgotten men and women. But I have an even better feeling because of what happened four years ago with Ohio. Even better feeling. And it's going to happen again. And Ohio's track record of backing presidential winners is impressive. No Republican has won the presidency without Ohio. And since 1892, only twice has a candidate lost Ohio, but won the national election. In Washington, Jared Halpern, Fox News. Jared, thanks. We'll start there with our panel from the Fox News Decision Desk team. Director of the Fox News Decision Desk, Arnon Mishkin, co-director of the Fox News Poll, Darren Shaw, and Fox News Politics Editor, Chris Steierwald. Uh, guys, good to have you. Uh, less, a little bit more than one week away. And, you know, Arnon, it is interesting. Talk first about how this election, the way it's set up going in, is different. I, I don't think anybody fully appreciated how much early vote we were going to have this time and how that changes perhaps the character of this race. Exactly, Brett. I think you know, in, in 2016, 40% of Americans voted early and 60% voted on election day. This year, it's going to be the exact reverse, partially due to COVID and partially due to long-term trends of people voting early. But this year, over 60% of Americans will have cast their ballot by election day and less than 40% will likely be doing it in the traditional way, going to the polls on election day. That changes the dynamic because basically more Democrats are voting early, Republicans are voting late. Um, and then we know that from all the polling. So if we were to open up the ballot box today, we'd see that Joe Biden is in the lead right now. 
That doesn't mean he's going to win on election day, but that does mean that it's like we're in the second half of the game and the other team is, is, is ahead. And that's how the Republicans need to play, which makes it very challenging and sort of changes what Donald Trump needs to do in his campaign and also what Joe Biden needs to do in his campaign. Yeah, I want to talk about those strategies in a second. But Darren, what about your job, the decision desk's job on election night? Does it make it easier that this much of the vote is already in? Or does it make it harder because it's just split differently? Right. I I think in one sense it's easier. And that is to say in states like uh, Texas, for instance, where you have uh, in-person early voting and they're setting record numbers in Texas. I just looked this morning and I think in Denton County, north of Dallas, uh, they're already at 80% of their 2016 uh, total vote numbers right now, just in early voting. I mean, it's, it's pretty astonishing. But that vote is going to be banked, and it's going to be counted pretty early by, uh, in this instance, Texas election officials. So, so that big chunk of the vote, plus the vote that's cast on election day, uh, we're going to be able to process pretty quickly. The key is, though, is that not all early voting is the same. In-person early is one type. Mail-in balloting is another. And that mail-in balloting part of the equation, Brett, is really hard. Um, because like Arden says, we have a lot of good polling information. The problem is that people who tell us they voted by mail, um, I'm, I'm sure they're representing that as best they can, but some of them are probably not going to follow through. And some of them are going to try to follow through, but are going to have problems. And, and so you know, we'll be sitting there on election night with, say, 80% of our expected vote in in a state like Pennsylvania. And, you know, we'll, let's say one candidate's up a couple of points. Let's say it's Trump is up a couple of points. We'll probably sense that about 20% of that vote is outstanding. And we'll have a strong polling estimate about the distribution of that vote. But we could be off on either of those numbers, the proportion of the vote still outstanding and the party split on that vote. And that makes it really tricky from our point of view. Yeah, I mean, potentially, and, and I'm a veteran of, of Tallahassee in 2000, bouncing from courtroom to courtroom, looking at hanging chads. But this time, Chris, you have the possibility of mail-in ballots, signatures, secretaries of state battling with legislatures of two different parties, um, not to get too in the weeds, but I mean, it's potential if it's not solved on election night substantially that night. And certainly that's what Republicans are hoping for. Uh, they need that the the last card left in the deck for them is that, and it's not election day, it's election two weeks, right? Where you have, and you know, look, we should remember parties do this every cycle. They lawyer up, they get ready, they go in with the expectation that you know it could be Florida again, and uh, for twenty years. Both parties have been ready to replay that scenario if need be. And in fact, we do see litigation each cycle because somebody says the polls closed too early or the tree fell on the power line outside of, you know, uh, Mrs. Brown's elementary school. And so we've got to keep the polls open there and judges will be ready and the Supreme Court will be ready. But frankly, I'm confident. Um, I'm confident that our judicial system, I'm confident that our elections officials, this sort of reminds me of Y2K, speaking of another throwback to 20 years ago. People talked about it so much in 1999 that by the time it came, we were ready. So I, I think the good news here is we've been talking about these scenarios so much that elections officials and people like us and the courts and everybody are ready. Yeah. Arnon, you talked about strategy. Obviously, the president and his team are barnstorming in Pennsylvania now and going to a lot of different states over the next few days. Today, 
Joe Biden is down for another day. Um, it's not clear whether we're going to see him today. Um, and the campaign is putting out indications of trips to come, but not a lot of them. Um, what about that move? I don't think we've ever seen that either. It's interesting <laughs> and possibly even odd. It's, it is certainly surprising. Um, I, I can certainly understand why Joe Biden doesn't want to have as aggressive uh, activity as President Trump is having, but I don't understand why he's not doing anything. Um, and basically seems to have called a lid on very early in, the, in these on these days. And it doesn't make sense. I do think strategically, you know, he he has an opportunity because he's banked so much of his vote. He has an opportunity in these last few days to try to do whatever he can to appeal to the segment of elect, the electorate that hasn't yet voted that probably consists of a lot of sort of either weak Biden or weak Trump voters and that he could switch, switch over. He's banked all the sort of progressive um, Trumpy damned vote that's out there. That's in the bank and he can sort of move as close to the center as possible and I do not understand why he's sort of doing nothing. Yeah. Um Darren, one of the best states as far as tracking early is North Carolina, which is one of our battleground states. Um, and they track by party already. Absentee ballots, 1,400,035 uh, requested this time around. That's, there was only 225,000 requested in 2016. Right now, Democrats have about a 400,000 ballot lead as far as requested absentee ballots unaffiliated is 482. But my point being here is at this time, based on North Carolina, this is directly from the Secretary of State, um, the challenges on ballots that are being challenged or thrown out for one reason or another are significantly more, 7,417 right now being thrown out because they don't have a witness signature or the proper identification. And there's really not a lot of Republicans at all that fall into that category. So do Democrats, because they push for mail-in so early in some of these states, risk a lot of that vote being thrown out? I don't know about a lot of it. No, I mean, not a lot, but it's more yeah. significant than the other parts. Sure, sure. You know, yes. I mean, it's a short answer. But it's, it's an interesting strategy. I remember when, uh, you know, I grew up in California, and when uh, absentee voting no-fault absentee voting was first really kind of embraced uh, fully, that there were a lot of uh, strategists, especially on the Democratic side, who said that absentee vote campaigns were, uh, were not worth it, that essentially you were cannibalizing election day vote, um, and, and, you know, that it was a mistake. And I remember I listened to a Republican strategist who said at some point that, look, you know, if you're turning a, a 0.95 probability voter into a 1.0 because you know you have his vote in the bank on election day, you know, across hundreds of thousands of voters, that's a significant improvement. Um, you know, you, you take out of the equation the dentist appointment or the, you know, the call from the school that, that crops up for, you know, some small portion of, you know, otherwise kind of uh, dedicated voters. It keeps them from the polls on election day. And I think the Democrats have really embraced that. And they've gone aggressively on this strategy. I, I, it's a tendency we've been seeing for a while. The Republicans used to dominate the vote, absentee vote in states. And that's really flipped in the last few years. So I think it's a smart strategy. Having said that, I would caution against reading too much into the early vote numbers. Um, you know, it strikes me that every year they shift around a little bit. And so it's difficult to compare them to past years with, with any kind of partisan insight. Um, 
you know, and I do think that the talk about this, Chris alluded to this, that we've been geared, you know, geared up on this and keyed up on it for so long that it's not only the strategy, it's the second level strategy we're seeing coming into play where the lawyering is, is happening before the election. They're not even waiting for election day. Um, by the way, I do think small strategic point, and I'll end on this, Republicans embracing what Democrats call voter suppression strategies, I think is in some sense backfiring. I think it's become a keystone of Democratic mobilization rhetoric. Um, and in a lot of these places where you've had these practices in place, Democratic turnout is going up and up and up. And I think that's because they're, they're messaging on this in a pretty productive way. You know, don't let them take away your right to vote. And I think it's working in places like Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. Chris, how does looking at the current environment, and you're, you sound more and more like we're going to know on election night, how does Donald Trump win from here until election day? Well, uh, he, the way it would, here, here's how it would go. Um, so you would have Trump outperform. Now, the challenge Trump has now versus 2016 is, I was looking at numbers in Pennsylvania recently, Trump's deficit in Pennsylvania now is not that much more it's two points, whatever, than it was uh, at this point four years ago. The big difference is there's just not that many persuadable voters left. Uh, there were 12% of the vote. I was looking at the uh, Allentown morning call poll. And there were uh, four years ago, 12% of voters were either undecided or voting for some protest vote candidate. Uh, now that number is like 3%. And the, the reality for Trump is, he has, Biden has to collapse. What Trump needs is for people who are fine to vote for Biden, and we see this in polling in every state and across the country, where people are loosely attached to Biden in a, in a way that they aren't with Trump. Uh, and that's probably what you'd expect as a person who's just running as an alternative. Um, the, but what Trump needs is for Biden to really stumble here or for public opinion to turn on Biden sharply that lets him do in those in that last week to move the needle there substantially just to get he would need nationally basically to be down just four points. Maybe he could still win the, the Electoral College if he were just down four points, maybe even five points. Um, so he needs something. It's not enough for him to go out and fire up his base. He needs something to happen to Joe Biden. We'll hear from our panel after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Arnon, the Trafalgars of the world, the Rasmussens of the world, the IBDs of the world that have this race at 1.2 points. Trafalgar has state polls where Trump is leading in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida. Are they in a different mindset about how they're looking at the electorate who shows up? Or what's, what's the difference? I, I, I do not understand, I confess, the science behind many of those pollsters. I'm not going to attack them. <laughs> the science is slightly questionable. The conclude, I'm, but the conclude, there, there may be some validity to the conclusion. Um, I think that even with the numbers the way they are today, and even though I totally agree with Chris that Biden's in a very different position than Hillary Clinton's in, in terms of where he's standing in the polls. And he's a different candidate. In a different category, yeah. And, but at the same time, I do see some ability for two things to happen. For some of that undecided to go Trump's way, 
and for another part, which is that for Trump to really continue to drive up his base and his his turnout. I mean, in there is enough vote out there even today, even with all the extensive voting that's going on in Pennsylvania, there's enough out there in in the Allentowns of the world to really drive Trump's number up. Um, even though I think he is clearly fighting as from the underdog position, there there's enough people out there, and so Trump is wise to go out there and try to beat up beat the enthusiasm up, if you will, and and I think that that Biden didn't have the kind of stumble that really Trump needed in the last debate, but Trump was very clever in that last debate, and he was listening carefully. And when Biden misspoke or may have spoken correctly about his position on um, fracking and oil, Trump was very shrewd in terms of how he pounced on it and highlighted it and has continued to run on that. And, and that's possibly a way to really drive up his base turnout, because I think in many parts of Pennsylvania, certainly in Texas and other places, I think, you know, fears of what Biden will really do with the Green New Deal or whatever he's going to do about climate change could be enough to sort of give Trump a better chance than, than he looks right now. Yeah, I, I think that the Trump campaign jumped on it quickly. They put out some videos. The Biden campaign seemed like it was clean up on aisle four uh, for a whole day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so clearly that, that made a mark. The other thing, Chris, was that uh, that 60 Minutes interview, which was obviously the focus was the walkout on Leslie Stahl, but the interview that Biden and did with Nora O'Donnell and more importantly, Senator Kamala Harris did with Nora O'Donnell uh, was not their best foot forward either. I mean, they went down some answers that didn't come off, I didn't think, uh, great when she was pressed on being the most liberal senator and would she bring those policies to the White House under Biden, um, she just laughed and, and it just didn't seem like it worked. If you looked at, well, first of all, Joe Biden wouldn't be the Democratic nominee if Donald Trump wasn't president. But if you just looked at Joe Biden, if, if you could run the tape of the past year of just Joe Biden and no Donald Trump, you would say, this guy is going to get creamed like corn. This guy is dead. No way can this old person possibly win. He's unsteady. He's not a good debate. Like everything that is wrong. And the 60 Minutes is a perfect example. If Joe Biden was running again, let's say President uh, Marco Rubio was running for re-election right now, and Joe Biden had somehow won the Democratic nomination and turned that performance in a week before, it would be like the it would be the Hindenburg uh, crashing in New Jersey. People would be like, well, th this race is over. But he's not. He's running against Donald Trump. So when he has a bad outing, you're like, boy, this is pretty bad. Let's go to the other side. Oh, he, he stormed out. So it's, it's another example of how a very weak candidate, Joe Biden, gets away with murder because Trump lets him. Just to pick up on Chris, sorry, but you know, Donald Trump has been a genius at sort of name, giving a name to his opponents. In the case of Joe Biden, the name was Sleepy Joe. And yeah, against many people that, you know, Sleepy Joe would be like, this guy can't do the job. But after four years of Donald Trump, what I like to say is to a certain extent, Sleepy Joe turns out it's not the bug, that's the feature. And in a sense, that's what many people in the public want. That's really interesting because I think the race is about, on Biden's pitch is stop the chaos, you know, stop the just let's not be exhausted 
Barack Obama used that line the other day. Don't you want to stop being exhausted? Um, and Donald Trump, he's running against Biden, but really, Darren, he's running against COVID because uh, the closing argument for Democrats seems heavy COVID. And uh, as the closing argument is being made by President Trump, you know, COVID numbers are spiking and hospitalizations are going up. Yeah, I, I think that uh, this connects to the point that you raised earlier that all of us were sort of puzzling on, which is what, why is Joe Biden so lackadaisical, if, if, for lack of a better phrase, in, in the last couple of weeks, you know, leaving all sorts of uh, possible visits on the table. I, I think one way of viewing it would, would be to say it, it, it sits well or fits well with this sort of meta-narrative that uh, I'm cautious, I take this pandemic seriously, um, you know, and, and be, because I, I, I care about so much about America and the American people and because this has been so mismanaged, and in some sense, I think he's sacrificing visits to smaller venues where he might be able to, to you know, swing in there, get some positive publicity and, and jazz up turnout a little bit. I think he's sacrificing that for the, the consistency of the meta narrative. And you're right. I think that the, here's the smart, the really smart thing I think the Biden team is doing right now. Everything is being infused with a healthcare message. So, you know, the economy, that's really about healthcare. Uh, COVID, that's really about health care. The Supreme Court fight, that's really about health care. So it's one thing to say, you know, I'm concerned about COVID, but it, it allows him to connect to the single issue that I think he has the most substantive advantage on right now. Um, you know, and I, I think we can go uh, a little crazy sometimes, uh, kind of attributing genius to things that might just be seat of the pants decisions. But, but to the extent that the Biden team is doing something really smart here, I, I think this is probably it. You know, whether the tactics supporting that, the, the broader strategy work, you know, forfeiting trips and limiting access and stuff like that, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But, but I, I think that's what they're doing. You know, circling back to that 60 Minutes piece, you know, Chris, what's astonished me is that I thought about the, the questions Nora O'Donnell was asking. They weren't like zingers. They weren't like take her down, like really aggressive, pointed questions. But they were just matter of fact, can, can you answer this, clear this up? And suddenly I realized that Senator Harris has not done a single press conference or that, for that matter, a gaggle with the reporters who cover her since she was nominated to the position or nine days from the election. <laughs> so some of these, you know, both candidates have really not faced a ton of tough questions as America's voted. You know, it's interesting. A competitive race is a reporter's friend. When the race is competitive, you can make them talk. Uh, and when they're ahead, they don't want to debate. They don't want to talk to us. They don't want to talk to nobody, right? If you've got a lead, why would you risk it? And the thing that will frustrate these, if, if Biden does win, these reporters, these reporters, you know, we've seen some real lowlights uh, when we've seen some questions that were posed to Biden um, and a real lack of rigor on occasion. These reporters will be sorry if Biden does win because they've established the precedent, which is we're going to lock you out. You know, it's we remember during the Obama years to even get a picture of Barack Obama playing golf or to even get Obama to talk to the press. And we'd have to count down how many days has it been since Barack Obama talked to the press. Like Trump is basically like opening his window. He's like going to reporters houses. Hey, you want to talk some more? I want to tell you some more things. He's like a Let wood alone tweets. Is, exactly. He's a wood chipper of verbiage spewing like no White House reporter has had to go looking. And we forget that in the Obama era, it was very different. 
uh, they were very buttoned down, very limited access, and didn't do much press at all. And that is certainly what we see from Biden and Harris. And just one more thing about Harris. Kamala Harris, Biden picked somebody like himself. He picked a number two, right? He picked a person who is not, as we found out in her campaign, a dynamic, charismatic leader. She is a follower, right? She is a, she uh, in California, uh, in San Francisco, uh, and, and now with Joe Biden, she is a loyal, and I waited and looked like, is she going to try to separate herself? Is she going to delineate from Biden? Nope. She has absolutely been comfortable and seemingly happy uh, towing the company line. So that is, I, I think we, we get some insight about why her candidacy didn't work uh, in the first place. All right. Last time around the horn here, uh, late night, early night, Arnon. It's the, it'll be a late night. I mean, just the, the, the differences in the way the vote is going to be reported because of the mail-in and the, um, and the election in-person vote, it's going to make it more difficult than historically to, to discern a difference between the two candidates, particularly in the key battleground states. I'm very comfortable with the Fox News voter analysis that we have because I think we will have the best available data on how mail-in voters have voted, how election day voters have voted, now the early in-person voters have voted. But even so, I'd have to say that if no matter what the difference is going to be, it's going to be, a, a, it's going to be harder this year than it was in previous years. We have some good models that we've introduced in this year, which I think will be helpful, but it'll be an early night. It'll be a late night. Late night. Darren? Late night. Partly, I don't want to predict an early night because I don't want to jinx it. Um, Seriously. And, um, <laughs> you can't, I don't know you can't ask us this. I don't know. Yeah. Trying to think of even the blowout elections, it seems like we're there until three in the morning. Um, That's true. But, uh, but, but, I, but the other thing is, is that we're also calling the control of the U.S. Senate. Yeah. And Senate races are. are yeah. And, and Brett, I think uh, you and Aaron and Chris and I have spoken about this earlier. There are some, uh, you know, I, I do think it'll be a late night because I think some of these upper Midwest states are just going to be so difficult to call. Even even if maybe we see the handwriting on the wall a little bit, I, I think we're we're really going to have to sit tight. But then on the Senate side, I'm, I'm looking at states like Alaska and Montana, where it looks like Republicans have slight edges. But if if the country does go blue, we could be waiting a, a long time. And those results could now if country goes really blue, those are just going to be, you know, kind of pylon states. But they could be decisive. This is this is our worst case scenario. Is that uh, waiting for the Alaska returns by dog sled are going to determine control of the United States Senate? <laughs> well, even that, or Chris, the uh, runoff in Georgia, or something like that. Or the runoff. And and here's what I would just remind everybody: there will be surprises. That's why it's fun. That's why we like this. That's why we've devoted our professional lives to this. Is because there will be stuff. I don't know if anybody remembers in two thousand and eight. Uh, we're watching Missouri count and Indiana has come in for the Republicans. What? Or for the Democrats. What? Uh, and you, or, I mean, the whole night of 2016 as Pennsylvania hangs and everything goes, this is the stuff that is fascinating. Look, nobody has a better probability machine than the Fox News channel. Our Fox News voter analysis is by far the best in the business. I would only point out we started, our competitors are trying to lash up something to compete with it at the last minute. We moved out of the antiquated uh, exit polling model four years ago. And Arnon and his uh, mighty team of nerds have been building this magnificent machine for all this time. So we, we are, 
really well situated to do all this stuff. But no matter how much we know, there will still be surprises and upsets and changes and trends, and it's going to be great. Yes, it will be great. And your mighty team of nerds uh, will be <laughs> in position. And uh, we'll come down and talk to you. We'll all be tested and completely COVID in a bubble. But uh, it, looks, it looks like it's going to be a, an interesting time, nine days away. All right, guys, thank you very much. Here's a bit of campaign trivia for you. October 14, 1912, Theodore Roosevelt was campaigning in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the way to give a speech when a would-be assassin shot Roosevelt in the chest. The bullet made impact, but only after passing through his metal eyeglass case and a 50-page copy of his speech. He was going to talk for a long time. He was carrying that in his jacket pocket. Roosevelt went on to refuse medical attention until after giving his speech, telling the audience, I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. There you go. That will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Arnon, Darren, and Chris, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 